This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, a place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Debbie Little and Sam Braver. Debbie Little is a partner at Denton's and is one of our trust and estate litigation experts. She has over 30 years of experience in commercial litigation. She's licensed and co-located in our Pittsburgh and Naples offices. During the early years of her legal career, Debbie concentrated on insurance coverage actions in the environmental context and products liability litigation in the medical device, pharmaceutical, and automotive industries. Uh, Sam Braver is also a partner at Denton. Sam has over four decades of experience trying highly complex cases in state and federal courts throughout the United States. He's represented a wide variety of commercial and financial institutions regarding complex lending issues, commercial litigation, intellectual property, as well as sophisticated probate and trust litigation. Sam is also licensed in our uh, Pennsylvania and Florida offices and is co-located in Pittsburgh and Naples. So uh, our discussion today uh, will include insights from their experience in fiduciary litigation, changes in the alternative investment industry and what those mean for fiduciaries, and how families and fiduciaries can do a better job of preparing uh, to avoid potentially costly litigation. So let's get started. Debbie, uh, let's start with you. In terms of a typical client matter for you and, and Sam, you know, when do these, uh, what do these look like and when do they usually come up? Sure, Eddie. Um, the usual background scenario is an individual or perhaps a husband and wife through their business and professional endeavors have accumulated significant wealth and they want to preserve it for future generations beyond their own children. And they want to make sure that their descendants are taken care of as far as health, education, maintenance, and support, HEMS. Um, they also usually have a goal of avoiding taxes if possible, being, being tax efficient. And so sometimes they set up trusts um, and they appoint someone, um, sometimes an individual, maybe a family member or a family friend, uh, sometimes an entity, um, an institution to be the uh, trustee of the trust and to carry out their intentions into the future through, through the trust. The issues that we see come up uh, usually start to arise when the beneficiaries become adults. Um, as you can imagine, they don't always readily accept the fact that money, which they consider to be theirs, even though they didn't necessarily earn it, um, but they're um, disgruntled to learn <laughs> that their money is held in trust um, because they want to control it. And so they start to raise issues uh, sometimes about the amount of their distributions. They want to spend down the trust. Um, they may raise issues as to investment performance. Um, with charitable trusts, we've seen uh, the next generation view that as family money. Uh, and they want to control the grants um, with revocable trusts after the set law dies. Sometimes the beneficiaries don't understand why the trust wasn't administered for their benefit. The other thing we run into a lot is that um, the beneficiaries uh, in future generations 
aren't as close to the trustee that the set lawyer selected. Um, maybe the individual, whether it's a family member or a family friend, was from the older generation, um, or the corporate trustee who's ever the individual that's acting in that capacity is not someone that they've dealt with for decades. Um, and they want to replace that person with some other trustee that they think they can control. Um, also, these trusts sometimes allow an adult beneficiary to become a co-trustee. And then multiple trustees have to try to work together, and that can lead to stalemates and deadlocks, and we've handled some of those. And, you know, as you can imagine, in, in COVID or another financial crisis, some of these issues can just be accentuated. Um, for example, a drop in value of the trust may be more acute because of the situation that we're living in right now. Um, or a beneficiary may have a greater need for cash if they've lost their job or their business isn't doing well. And we're typically engaged by the trustees in these scenarios, whether they're the corporate trustee or an individual trustee or a group of tr individual trustees, we're typically engaged on the trustee side and we're asked to do things like interpret the trust language for them, give them advice as to what their fiduciary duties are and whether, you know, based on the language of the trust and their inherent duties, whether they're allowed to do something they want to do or whether they're not allowed to do something um, or whether they're required to do something that they're being asked to do. And then, of course, we defend um, litigation. Sometimes the trustee has filed an accounting and the beneficiaries have filed objections to the accounting, and we would um, defend against those objections. Um, sometimes beneficiaries have filed a surcharge action against the trustees seeking money from them personally or money from the corporate trustee from its, from its corporate coffers, not from the trust, um, for breach of fiduciary duty. And we, you know, routinely, um, defend those actions. So these are, these are some of the typical scenarios we see. Sam, anything to add? Yeah, I would add one more, Ed. We uh, have seen probably in the last five to ten years uh, more claims, and this would arise uh, in with the corporate fiduciaries who have their own large corporate fiduciaries uh, who have their uh, uh, own securities and various accounts. There's a conflict of interest that uh, has arisen. Uh, and you know, whether or not has, uh, and the claim is head of ours, you've uh, used trust money uh, to enhance your own um, um, securities and private veteran capital uh, uh, investments uh, that you've made available to us. Uh, but uh, that is uh, uh, becoming more common and uh, be something that we talk about uh, as we go forward. Uh, with respect to the Uniform Food and Investor Act. You know, sticking on that, you know, you and Debbie recently penned an article focused on alternatives and, you know, fiduciary duty. I mean, you mentioned how alternatives have really become less alternative and more mainstream. Uh, and, and Debbie touched us on this a little bit, but how did that complicate matters 
uh, with these with that asset class during COVID nineteen, uh, you know, compared to other market you know downturns, you guys have certainly experienced a lot of those uh, in your practices over the years. You know, whether it was nine eleven or the global financial crisis. I mean, what was different about COVID? I, there are uh, some differences and, and folks, but I think it might be helpful to first provide um, a working definition of alternative investments. Um, broadly speaking, um, and the, they are expected to provide a counter-cyclical investment strategy and return to a uh, trust's portfolio or an investment advisor's portfolio, not fixed to markets. These came into greater consideration uh, and deployment after 9-11. They certainly existed before, but in terms of uh, and making them part of the overall uh, portfolio philosophy and, and a factor to consider, um, the 9-11 impact on the investment market uh, with a further um, focus following the 2007, 2008, global financial crisis and the global breakdown of financial markets. Um, and so why that focus uh, and what do these alternatives do? They, these investments direct more investment dollars away from traditional investments uh, in which you would typically see in fixed income and publicly traded equity securities into investments such as private equity startups, venture capital, early stage investments or growth in areas such as real estate, natural resource exploration, high tech innovations, and certain tangible properties such as art and wine. Uh, but by 2020, uh, when, co when we began to see and experience the uh, extreme negative effects of COVID, uh, we had, uh, we had learned, um, and we were, and we're still enduring the COVID. But we learned that diversified portfolios, following the the 9/11 and, and 2008 crisis, containing alternative investments as part of the portfolio, should have been uh, more in place to help trustees and financial advisors reduce uh, and or soften um, the impacts of a negative market disruption on the overall investment portfolio. As we continue to ride out the COVID-19 effects, uh, we'll see that. In some, COVID did not necessarily complicate alternative investment strategy. It added a different concern and an area of exposure for investment advisors and fiduciaries. Uh, it created um, situations where now a, uh, a trustee uh, may, because of the impact of COVID, um, they will uh, might find that their liquid needs for uh, meeting distributions uh, have, have been impacted, uh, and they will have to decide whether and how they go about meeting those needs. Short of failing, uh, there will be a more of a concentration on monitoring investments, uh, is this uh, a risk that you can continue to stay with? Um, because private um, alternative and private equity have been uh, impacted like others, but it's been spread out. Um, is it sort of a liquidity trap or? or well, it's or a uh, it's a liquidity analysis 
that uh, you could find yourself in a trap if you had not current, you know, uh, if you had not assessed the risk, if you had not diversified the portfolio, if you had not managed the uh, risk so that you've not over-concentrated, as we'll speak about later in, in particular industries or firms. Um, but the liquidity need will become um, and has become a, a focus of uh, fiduciary uh, professionals, investment advisors, as they uh, try to um, stay, stay, the, stay the course during COVID. So COVID would probably suggest more of a monitoring and due diligence during the pandemic to assure the diversified portfolio. All right. Well, thank you, Sam. And then, and then Debbie, in terms of, you know, everything that, uh, you know, you and, and, and Sam have discussed and all the issues that can come up, you know, how should fiduciaries be evaluating these alternative opportunities? Assuming that the, the trust is a, a, a qualified investor, then the next thing to look at is, you know, the distribution requirements of the beneficiaries both now and in the future and try to predict their needs for um, cash because these alternative investments are long-term investments. They're not um, liquid. In fact, there are restrictions on resale and there may not be a, a readily available resale market like there is with um, equities sold on the stock market. Um, but once you've determined that the um, trust can handle a portion of the portfolio being illiquid, um, then you're going to get into selecting your alternative investment opportunities. And there's where you want to really um, consider using them to diversify the portfolio. I mean, these are inherently high-risk investments, um, but they do have a potential, at least theoretically, for greater uh, returns. So in and of themselves, they're going to diversify the portfolio. But you do have an opportunity to diversify your alternative investments themselves. I mean, you should be um, investing in more than one of them because these things are expected to fail, uh, so, you know, if you invest in maybe 10 of them, you know, you might get one uh, that's really successful and the other eight or nine are going to fail in some way or other. Um, but if you invest in a number of different alternatives across different industries, you can potentially reduce that risk um, Further, the, the degree of risk associated with high-risk alternative investments can be, can be materially reduced by um, diversifying the alternative investments themselves. Um, but of course, you know, what we're learning in this COVID world is that some industries have, have really suffered and um, others not as much. And fiduciaries are really going to need to assess what what a post-pandemic world is going to look like and whether some of these industries are going to bounce back um, or whether some of these industries are going to be, be forever changed. Um, so that, that's what I would advise a fiduciary uh, to look at just, you know, as a high level overview. Well, thank, thanks Debbie. And in terms of, um, 
you know, the fiduciary duties that come into play when you're talking about alternative investments. I think you guys had mentioned four areas uh, that are quite critical, due diligence, risk and reward analysis, uh, you know, duty of loyalty and conflict avoidance and duty to document. Uh, maybe we could talk about those in particular in some detail that you think are, are best practices that families and fiduciaries should be thinking about. Maybe, Sam, we could start with you on the due diligence side. What are your thoughts there? Due diligence, uh, when you're dealing with private equity and alternative investments, uh, is much more difficult uh, in many instances because you don't have the information uh, that's readily available about private companies. But since we're focusing on what a reasonably prudent investor, or in this case, the trustee, would do under the circumstances, you need to be, as the financial advisor or trustee, ask for and review as much financial uh, marketing industry information that's available, both at the outset when you're considering the investment, as well as during uh, the uh, investment after you make it for your monitoring uh, tasks. Uh, do your independent analysis. If you're being asked to consider an alternative investment in a particular space or industry, um, what's available about the space? What's, where is the market going? Um, what, uh, it, what have other venture capital capitalists done that's been reported, Wall Street Journal or otherwise? Uh, you can go uh, at the time you're being asked to make the investment, do as best you can and as many as you can, interviews with management, uh, interview the original investors. If there are venture capital firms that are, have been involved that are known on, this, uh, on the street, discuss with them um, their, their experience, what their reasons for um, going into the investment were uh, to the extent that they will share it. If you have the opportunity to meet uh, and vet the board members, uh, including reviewing their backgrounds uh, that you're being asked to put money into, that's information that a reasonable, um, prudent investor slash trustee would want to consider. Same thing with management, review of their backgrounds. Uh, you look at a uh, review and have professionals look at the investment documents, um, whether it's by a trustee, if it's competent to do so, the, uh, the, the bigger uh, corporate fiduciaries, or you take advantage of what you're allowed to do under the um, Prudent Investor Act that we'll talk about, about seeking professionals and delegating it to somebody who is a professional investment advisor to gather the information. And all that due diligence is what you're going to be measured against uh, when you gather that information in order to analyze the risks associated with taking a part of somebody else's money, of which you're the steward for, and investing it in order to create uh, a return that is beneficial to this trust. So due diligence is seeking the information uh, that you can gather in order to uh, do what's obvious, uh, engaging in the risk-reward analysis to assess that targets, uh, investments, probability of achieving its sales, revenue, or return objectives, and whether it will produce an acceptable return over the uh, expected duration uh, of what you've determined your needs to be. 
should be documented, preserved, and kept in a, an investment memorandum or plan and strategy, which we'll um, talk a little bit about later, to avoid the Monday morning quarterback, to show that you made a, a reasonable investment at the time. Uh, if sufficient information is not available, Ed, maybe uh, either initially or subsequently after you made the initial investment, then the trustee needs to consider whether the investment should have been made or maintained or whether further investments should be made in later tranches, uh, you know, whether it's part of the growth aspect. Because COVID is going to t do a um, strain a number of um, private equity and alternative um, investment uh, operations, and they're going to need capital. Um, it happens when, they're, you don't, when you're not dealing with uh, market disruption or a pandemic. Um, so that's what due diligence uh, would be in terms of private investments. And if you can kick the tires and see the laboratory or see the engineering firm, whatever is going on, do it. Um, that will enable you to make a, um, a much more reasoned analysis of the risks involved. Debbie, on, from your perspective, maybe you could talk to us about um, conflicts. Uh, and, and how, uh, uh, you know, both fiduciaries and families should be looking at how to avoid them uh, in these types of uh, in these types of scenarios. Exactly. I, I think most people are aware that they should avoid conflicts of interest. But I guess what we've seen is that they're not always attuned to the fact that co-investing is not always a great idea where the um, individual trustee puts their own personal money in or a principal of the corporate fiduciary uh, puts their own personal money in alongside of a trust investment. And they're thinking that the interests are aligned. Um, and maybe they are initially, but things often change throughout the course of the investment. But I, I would say if they're, if they're insisting on co-investing, that that should at least be disclosed in writing. But, you know, even if it is disclosed in writing, if the investment goes sour, in our experience, there are going to be claims. There's going to be a claim that um, trust funds were invested along with the fiduciary's own funds in order to meet a minimum investment threshold. A lot of these um, private equity Investments have a, have a minimum threshold. Uh, we've also seen claims that trust funds were invested just to keep the company afloat for the benefit of other investors, some of whom were the fiduciaries. Um, so even if the in, uh, interests appear to be aligned at the beginning, um, that doesn't always play out that way. Um, and one thing in our experience that a co-investing fiduciary should not do is to continue to invest trust funds uh, in future rounds of the investment if the fiduciary is not also continuing to put their own personal funds in because that's going to give rise to a claim that they're um, simply continuing to invest the trust funds in order to protect their own um, prior investment. You know, conflicts are not, while people are aware that they're supposed to avoid conflicts, it's not, not always intuitive 
um, some of these scenarios that we see. It's an interesting point you make there on the conflict side, because it's it's not just investing together, but it could be choosing not not to invest could be a conflict in and of itself. Right. And, you know, the trust fund maybe can risk more than an individual investor could. So the individual investor backs off but continues to put the trust funds in. That's going to be criticized. So, Sam, you, you talked about this earlier, the Uniform Prudent Investor Act. Can you give us a, a, a succinct definition and, and why do you think this is important uh, for individuals when they're considering their fiduciary uh, duties? Well, the, um, the act, which has um, been codified in, in, in numerous versions, but the underlying theme, Ed, is that uh, we've moved away from the analysis of a particular in investment and whether it performed or it didn't perform to what is more of a modern um, portfolio theory that the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And we've, we've learned that uh, a, what used to be the very commonplace to either fixed equity, excuse me, fixed income or common equity really does not, uh, and there were approved uh, investment types that trustees and fiduciaries um, would uh, be permitted uh, to make. And if you, and if you strayed from them, uh, you'd, you'd expose yourself. But what that didn't do was protect the overall portfolio or the risks associated with what we've experienced. Um, and you would have a lot of... <laughs> what was be considered to be uncompensated risks. If you're investing in um, loading up in a particular industry with a very limited return, you're not being paid for the risk that you're taking. So the modern portfolio theory uh, that you need to diversify the portfolio, weather these storms, uh, have it being focused on a an ability. You're never going to... Uh, uh, control market risk. The pandemics will occur. It will have its impact. But you can minimize and reduce both firm uh, risk and industry risk, uh, firm risk, spread that out and diversify it, uh, and, and industry spread it across. Because as Debbie said, and we've experienced in cases, you're going to lose uh, uh, three or four out of ten uh, in your private equity. So what the re- uniform um, Prudent Investor Act uh, said we are uh, we are going to recognize that there is no limitation on any property that can be invested in, as long as you act reasonably as a trustee uh, who exercising his reasonable care, skill, and caution, uh, and making a determination uh, and analyze risk. Uh, although it, uh, there is. Uh, there is more risk associated with a private equity or an alternative, but there is a greater return if you went through the due diligence, if you went through the analysis. Um, we are going to analyze this based upon the overall performance. Um, so in effect, where one or two might not perform the overall portfolio returning a positive performance, uh, there is uh, – less of a chance uh, of the fiduciary investment advisor being 
subjected, subjected to a claim. The claims can always be made, but a successful claim. So the focus is on the overall uh, portfolio uh, diversification among the investments, even diversification among the alternative investments, reduces risk um, and spreading it across your alternatives in different industries. But uh, move forward, a risk not tied to uh, uh, necessarily uh, a particular industry or firm looking for growth opportunities because that's the goal. And that is the what's permitted under the Uniform Prudent Investor Act and why fiduciaries do the due diligence, do the analysis in order to uh, and considering all of the uh, various circumstances such as the long-term needs of the beneficiaries, inflation, um, global impact, and try to come up with a uh, a return that when uh, the investment was made uh, was reasonable and a return that will meet the needs of the trust. The act now allows delegation of the investment function to a professional. Prior to the act, trustees could get advice from outside specialists, but they were required to form their own independent judgment as to investments. And now under the act, the investment function can actually be delegated to a professional, although you have to use uh, reasonable caution in selecting your professional and, and monitoring your professional um, but that's another change that. And how would you uh, define that, that professional? Is it somebody who's licensed, uh, uh, either in a you know Series Seven or sixty six, sixty five type series, or 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 can it be broader uh, to other folks? Because those are going to be different in different states. Um, and uh, how does that really? How does that apply? Um, those are going to be different in different states, and I don't think it's um, necessarily limited to people with those licenses. But, um, you know, there's a whole host of firms out there that um, give investment advice. You don't right. have to make them your trustee, um, but they can give advice to your trustee, and, and your trustee can actually delegate decision-making authority to them uh, with respect to investments now under, under the act. Um, And I I guess uh, what I would add is that the, uh, the, somebody who is experienced in investment decision analysis, um, it does not have to, you know, whether they're licensed or not will be a factor that somebody might uh, look at down the road. Uh, But you're looking at um, somebody who has, uh, brought with them the the experience in private equity uh, alternative investments as well as uh, the experience in overall portfolio management. Um, as, as Debbie indicated, the Uniform Prudent Investor Act brought with it the ability to uh, have the fiduciary employ um, the uh, the tasks of an agent, but you have to be reasonable in your selection. Uh, and by the very nature of uh, allowing you to in, uh, invest in, in all types of property, uh, in speculative as well as what might be viewed as being more the traditional anchors, uh, that takes a an experienced eye. 
takes an experienced financial analysis. Uh, and the um, so it's not somebody that carries the title license. It carries the um, the scars and marks of uh, and gray hair of doing it. Well put. I would say, uh, you know, you guys have both covered in, in, in different parts of our conversation today around, uh, you know, how families and fiduciaries can do a better job of preparation. Uh, certainly some common themes that you've talked about, you know, diversi diversification, doing your homework, your due diligence, documenting uh, procedures. Any other areas that uh, that you think families should consider and, and, and fiduciaries should consider to avoid uh, well, you know, the litigation that you guys practice, you know, maybe, uh, Debbie, we could start with you. Sure. Um, well, communication, I think, goes a long way to avoiding claims. So, like, upfront, communicate the risks clearly in English, in writing. Um, just about anybody be able to understand if somebody tells her, you can lose it all, period. You can lose it all. And you're not going to be able to resell this investment. You're in it for the long term. You can't turn this into cash. In plain English, communicate the risks clearly and not just at the beginning of embarking on alternative investments, but for each investment, disclose those risks every time in writing. Um, get the consent of the set law or the beneficiary in writing if you can. The more documentation, um, first of all, the communication will avoid the disputes in the first place, but if there are disputes, the communication, if it's written, will help us defend the disputes. Um, when you're talking about um, trying to understand the liquidity needs of the trust before getting involved in these things, Get written budgets from the beneficiaries. Have them put in writing what the liquidity needs are of the trust. Um, and then regularly reporting back um, to the to the settlor, to the beneficiaries on each of these investments in writing. You know, are they meeting the goals? Are they meeting the projections? Are they behind? Are future rounds of investing going to be needed? Do they need more infusions of cash? Has the business failed? If, if so, why? Um, in, informing them of the good news and the bad news in a timely fashion with a reasonable explanation can, can go a long way to um, avoiding claims. And then also um, adjusting the carrying values. You know, if there's been a, a future funding round that's either at a higher price or a lower price, you know, adjust the carrying values up or down. Or certainly if a business has failed, um, write the carrying value down um, and communicate that to, to your stakeholders um, can go a long way to um, fostering a, a good relationship with them. And if I just might add two or three points um, in, in this information, the communication that we're talking about, you know, it's, uh, it's not like wine, bad news uh, uh, doesn't get better with age. Uh, so it's uh, communicating at the time, education, educating beneficiaries um, 
you know, younger generations as they come uh, become interested, if it's a family office or if there's a distribution committee that they might be sitting on, uh, or there are annual meetings where the trustee meets with the beneficiaries of the family office, meets with the various um, younger generations, educate them, keep them apprised of what's going on uh, with not only with the portfolio, but within the, the industry and the spaces that, they're, that they are uh, part of and in. Um, having independent professionals experienced, as we talked about, but independent, which allows for, I believe, a, a greater acceptance uh, when you're down into the second and third generations. Um, and uh, document, you know, if there's a family, annual family meeting, providing the information in advance, uh, providing summaries afterwards, um, why decisions were made uh, during the course of the year. It's, it's all under the umbrella of communication, but it's also under the um, sub-umbrella of uh, informing those with whom uh, you're coming into contact and whose assets you have the fiduciary duty to steward so they have an appreciation of what took place, why it took place. may not eliminate all of the risks, but you're at least um, having creating the situation that you can point to that I did this because. So your due diligence is both at the time as well as afterwards so that you can have a track record of having done as the professional in the family office or the investment advisor of the family office or the trustee uh, and his or her or its agents that these were the basis uh, for the decision why we did what we did and I and we hope and we kept those for whom we have the responsibility of their uh, wealth and assets in mind and did it in a way that um, would be viewed to be reasonable under the circumstances. I think that's a great point around education and transparency that you and, and Debbie make, um, and I think it's uh, you know very uh, very important in the context of what we've discussed today. I'll ask you one more question. You know, both of you have decades of experience in this field. What's the one thing you wish you knew now that you uh, versus back when you started? Now, I think that uh, had uh, in terms of doing what we do, um, I think that it um, it would be nicer to have the role of the um, the having trustees had the uh, ability to um, rely upon the the uh, experienced professionals uh, that that came along more uh, in the, um, you know, it, it may be always been internally, but the independent professional advisors in which the trustee could go to, to advice, uh, that would have been an area that would have been much more helpful uh, and when started to try these cases, um, uh, you know, 35, 40 years ago, uh, when you're really dealing with uh, Solely the um, in-house, uh, not that they weren't competent, but it uh, it lacked a, a layer of um, credibility in my mind. Uh, but now you see 
that this is a much more fast growing, uh, very uh, expert uh, piece driven area of the of uh, investment and trusteeship that the the um, burdens on the trustee are, are much greater. The burdens on the financial advisor are much greater. And the second and third generations don't have that allegiance to what mother and father or old grandpa and grandma used to believe in. Um, the one thing I've been learning as we go are the tax issues. Um, and they're, they always seem to come up in these cases. They're intertwined throughout, you know, every move you make in these cases. And um, that's one of the things that's really nice about being part of Denton's is that we have this whole tax department. Sam and I are litigators, um, but we have this whole tax department and, and wealth um, preservation group behind us that can tell us, um, you know, what the, can explain the tax issues to us. Um, and can um, give us guidance, e even if you're about to settle a case, it's got it's got a tax ramification. Um, and so we work very, very closely with them. And that's that's what we've been learning as we go that I wish we had known more about the taxes on the front end than, than we do now. Great. Well, listen, uh, thank you, Debbie. And thank you, Sam, uh, for joining. And certainly, uh, providing your, your insights uh, over the decades of experience that you bring to this issue. And then uh, thanks uh, to all of you for listening today. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests or you have any questions, send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or are so inclined, subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way you can show your support. To sign up uh, for our newsletters and to learn more about our solutions and research uh, in the family office space, do check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Uh, bye, everyone.